When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, it's not really a new season preview for the good reason that the new season, of course, has already started. We've had the World Cup, but it's just a little catch-up. I guess it's also uh, a man talks to himself for 20 minutes because I don't have a guest. Um, but, you know, I'm not Bayswatch, Watch. I don't have their budget. Um, but we're going to look forward to the Riga Masters, which, of course, starts on Friday. First ranking event of the new season and also just catch-up on what's been happening of late. I guess one of the big stories after the World Championship uh, was that uh, the snooker scene editor, Clive Everton, has been uh, awarded the MBE. He'll be going to the Palace in October to pick it up. And my word, talk about overdue. I mean, Clive has been working in snooker for about six decades now in various roles, obviously, as a journalist and very well-respected commentator. But a lot of people, I think, don't know also some of his roles behind the scenes. He founded, for example, the IBSF. The Masters was his idea because the sponsorship agents for Benson Hedges approached him and asked him for a format for a snooker tournament and he came up with the Masters and lots and lots of other things as well that Clive's done for snooker and billiards over the years. So I know he was very proud to to um, get the letter from the Palace and it's thoroughly deserved. I guess it begs the question though, uh, who else in the snooker world should be getting an honour? And I think there are a couple of uh, potential... Um, candidates. One of them, quite an obvious one really, Barry Hearn. I mean, not just for what he's done for snooker, but across British sport, Barry, for, again for decades, has, has con- contributed so much. Um, and he's got his charitable foundation as well. To me, he should get a knighthood. Um, but we'll see. It, it is a bit of a labyrinthine process, the whole honest thing, because I know that a couple of years ago, it started for um, for Clive with Terry Griffiths actually wrote uh, the original letter and then there were other people who got involved and I spoke to Terry then. So two years it took um, before the honour was bestowed. So for all we know, there might be a process going on for, for Barry Hearn. I think the other person you could say probably should get something is Mark Selby. He's won three world titles. Uh, I seem to remember Mark Williams got an MBA having won two. Um, obviously he's won a third since then. 
but yeah, Mark Selby again, he's you know very professional and does work for charity as well alongside his sporting achievements. A lot of people, of course, will say, well, the honours system is kind of corrupt. It's, a lot of politicians seem to give it to party donors or that, all that sort of thing. Also, there is no British Empire to be, to be a member of anymore. But if we're going to have an honour system, then it should go to people who've contributed to their chosen field. And, and certainly Barry and Mark have done that, as indeed as Clive. Um, and good luck to him for his trip to the palace. One of the other things that's happened since uh, the Crucible is, of course, the Women's World Championship went to Thailand, where it seemed to be a big success, actually, and it certainly was again for Rianne Evans, her 12th world title. 12th world title. Quite incredible, really. Um, and I think very satisfying for Rianne, because she, of course, had won it all those years, and then and then On Yi from Hong Kong came along and sort of challenged her supremacy, but Rianne's got her title back and could well be in the Champion of Champions because the Women's World Championship has been added to the list of qualifying events. It depends on what happens in tournaments on the professional tour uh, that are coming up, but she could end up in that, and that would be great for her and good for the women's game as well. Some people have said, well, she should get a, a card for the tour. She has had one before, I think it's worth pointing out. I think it's also worth pointing out she did go to Q School and didn't fare too well, and that's no diss on, on Rihanna, it's just a fact. So it's a bit of a balance as ever. Do you go entirely on merit? Because there's no men's tour, it's the professional tour, it's open to men and women. But women historically have had fewer opportunities. And indeed, in the old days of the British snooker clubs, you know, you, you would not take your daughter to them. So they, they played less. And of course, they didn't see women play snooker on television. So maybe weren't as inspired to take up the game as boys. So would having a woman on the tour maybe redress that balance? That's an argument. And people will have their own views. But it'd be great to see her in the Champion of Champions. That would be uh, great for her. And also, I think, because she lived quite close in Coventry. She's from the West Midlands. So I'm sure she'd bring... Plenty of people along to, to, to watch and cheer her on. Also just finished the Pink Ribbon event in Gloucester, which is a big charity event run by Paul Mount, very well established, won by Stuart Bingham. Of course it was won by Stuart Bingham, because he's uh, such a great supporter of pro-ams and just loves playing snooker. I think he's got one of the, the great attitudes, have Q, will travel, play in anything, and he's got a great record historically in, in pro-ams. He used to go to Pontins, Prestatin a lot. He'd go anywhere and play, because he just loves playing, and it's a, a good little sharpener for tournaments to come as we start to get into the, the meat of the season in the next sort of couple of months. Um, but a great event that as well, an important one for the charity for Paul. Of course, um, it's very special for him and his family as well. So good to see Stuart and others supporting that. The calendar was uh, released in terms of the professional events quite late this season. And one of the problems was slotting everything in because I understand that Will Snooker were negotiating for a tournament in Saudi Arabia. Now that's not come off this season, it may happen in the future, but that kind of put into doubt where the other tournaments were going to go. They switched a couple of the Chinese events around the International and the World Open, and the European Masters, which was in October before, is now going to be in January, straight after the, the Masters at the Ali Pali. It's a little bit frustrating for some of the players, I think, trying to plan holidays, trying to plan their year. Um, and also, again, it's not great in terms of, you know, you're in China one week, you're in Britain the next, you're somewhere else the next... It's not ideal, but it's worth pointing out that it's not easy dealing with broadcasters and sponsors and trying to keep everybody happy. And as I say, also trying to get new events on the calendar. It's very difficult, actually. It's it's kind of one of the, the problems with being in this thriving era is there are so many events. Championship League, for example, that will be on, I'm told, but we don't quite know when they're going to fit it in the calendar because looking, it's always traditionally after Christmas, but looking at the calendar, there don't seem to be enough days 
to actually play the 16 days before the World Championship. It may be that they, they finish it after the World Championship, which uh, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone would really look forward to because obviously after the Crucible, people just like to kind of stop and, and have a break. We shall see, but it, as I say, it's a good problem to have. That there's so many events, and of course the prize money as well is, is going up and up. It's £14.5 million, uh, confirmed prize money, and there's two potential £1 million bonuses, neither of which I think are going to be paid out. One is winning all four home nations events, as we know. That's just very, very unlikely. I mean, to win four ranking events is going to be very tough, but to win the specific four, just very unlikely. But it always gets a little bit of publicity ahead of the home nations. The other million pound bonus is for 20 maximums um, in a season. We've had one so far, Tom Ford. Um, again, 20. I mean, the most has ever been in a single season is 13. Now, there are a lot of tournaments, but to get to 20, it's going to be tough. But, of course, if they... if we do have 20 in a season, then the money is split between all the players who have made a maximum, so they get 50 grand each. I've got to say, though, if, if there's been 19 and we go, say, to the World Championship and someone's on a maximum, talk about pressure, not just for themselves, but for the other 19 people in the pot. I mean, that's, you know, it's all, there's pressure anyone on a maximum at the Crucible, but if you're effectively playing for all these other people as well, well, I think get the paramedics on standby. Uh, we shall see, but as I say, I think it's unlikely. But but the point is, fourteen and a half million. Bearing in mind when Barry Hearn took over in twenty ten, the prize money was three and a half million, and there were six ranking events and, and not a lot else. So it just shows the incredible work that's happened, bringing in all these contracts, signing these deals with with China and the broadcasters and various sponsors. It's all a positive, and and what's happening is as well the money now is starting to go up lower down in the early rounds. You can earn a good living from snooker now without actually having to do all that much. You can win a few matches, get to a few last 16s, and you can earn 100 grand. That's a fact. Uh, whereas it used to be you had to basically get to finals to do that. So a lot of players are making a good living. Obviously, you know, it's worth saying there are other sports where they're getting paid millions and millions, but snooker is not going to be in that position just because of the sort of culture of it and historically it's not going to get to tennis and golf levels. But... Players are pulling down 70, 80 grand a year and they're not necessarily top 16, top 32 players. I'm not saying there are no reasons to complain about things. There's no issues. I mean, I understand, for example, that there have been certain events where the prize money's taken forever to get. So it's one thing to be earning the money, but actually you like to be paid it. That's another issue that obviously needs to be sorted out. But overall, if you sort of take a step back and look where the game was and where it is, I just don't understand how players can really complain too much. You know, things have improved and there's a lot of money to be won if you're winning as well. That's the other thing. It it rewards success, as sport should do. Um, and you look at, you know, the money that's been pulled down, for example, by Judd Trump, quite rightly, for his great season, Mark Williams, the year before winning the World Championship. You know, there's money to be made, as I say, for players doing well. There's an argument that the top prizes are too big. They maybe be skew the rankings a bit. But Jack Lazowski, he didn't win a tournament, but he got in the top 16. Um... And, it, you know, you also the fact that a, a big first prize is on offer is a way of generating publicity. It makes the tournament look important because, you know, you're playing for 200 grand as opposed to shaving it down to 100 and, and putting the money in lower down. I do feel there is, though, with all this money sloshing around, there is an argument now to pay people in the first round of tournaments. They do in the shootout, actually, but it's only 250 quid. But they're professionals. They've achieved something by making the tour they're gonna to have to spend money to go to the first round for qualifiers and so on there's an argument to say they should get something i think if there's all this money now on offer and that's 
an argument I'm sure a lot of players would agree with. Okay, the entry fees have been got rid of, but it may be time to think about, okay, maybe we can give them five hundred quid a grand, whatever it is, because they are professionals. It's not necessarily money for nothing. They've had to, they've had to do something to get on the tour. So that's an argument that people will agree with, disagree with, whatever, but just worth floating it out there. Of course, a lot of the money comes from the sponsors, which are almost entirely betting companies. Not in China, they have different, actually, actually blue chip sponsorship in China, but in the UK and Europe, they tend to be betting companies. And there is a danger, I think, in the future that, as we saw with tobacco, there'll be some sort of government decision possibly under a Labour government, if there is one, um, that it's time to get rid of that because we know that gambling can be pretty corrosive. And I must admit, I was watching some one of the sports channels the other day and every ad break, every ad break was just full of betting adverts. It's become, obviously, with internet betting, I think much more prominent. Now, there's always been a culture of gambling in snooker. You know, the old days in, in snooker clubs, there were sort of side bets and... and you know, it's part of that working class culture. And there's nothing wrong with, with gambling either. It's, you know, it's a legal activity, but it can, of course, become an addiction like a lot of things. And it can be, Mark King will tell you, because he's he's spoken about this and he's, he still goes, I think, to Gamblers Anonymous. It can be quite ruinous, actually, if it gets a, gets a grip of you. So the fact that we have so many betting companies sponsoring snooker, you could argue, is deterring bigger sponsors from coming in because they don't want to be associated with the sport that's flooded with gambling companies. The counter-argument to that is if you say, okay, well, we're not going to take the bookies' money, those other sponsors still may not come in because they may just not like snooker. They may think, no, we're going to go into middle-class sports like golf and cricket, and suddenly you end up with no sponsors. There's nothing wrong with the the betting companies at all. You know, it's great that they support the sport, um, but I just feel this is an issue that in the next few years may become more prominent. And what I've noticed as well is... It seems to me that outside Britain, there are a lot of countries in Europe where gambling is not such a part of the culture. Um, and I think they would look at the sort of the the flood of, of betting companies putting money into snooker maybe a bit more quizzically than we do in Britain. We've kind of accepted it. And like I say, there's nothing wrong with these companies. I mean, Betfred, for example, are fantastic sponsors. They really are passionate sponsors of the World Championship. Um, but... So were embassy, and in the end they had to stop. They were forced to stop. And it could become an issue, I think, in the next few years. I'm sure that, you know, we'd love banks and building societies and whatever to put money in, but at the moment that just is not realistic, um, but worth sort of monitoring in the future. Another thing that, that's changed with the Paul Hunter Classic, of course, it has been a ranking event the last few years. Um, it's now going to be an imitation event with just a few players in it. This is sort of chicken and egg thing, really. The top players didn't really support it. They didn't choose to play in it in the main. Um, so it sort of diminished in stature, became probably, you could argue, the sort of the least important ranking event in a way, lowest prize money. Um, but of course, the minute a tournament changes, everyone is up in arms and wants to play in it suddenly. Um, snooker in Germany is hugely popular, but again, the sponsorship isn't really there. It's popular with the public and television, but the, there isn't huge money coming in from sponsors. So World Snooker, you know, put in the money they thought the tournament deserved. The great shame of it, I think, is that this tournament was, was originally a G- the German Open Pro-Am. Paul Hunter won it. And obviously when he passed away, it was renamed in his honour. And it would be a shame if the tournament 
sort of lost status and that reflected on the sort of memories people have of him. He deserves to be remembered as, as what he was, which is a terrific guy and a great player. Of course, the Masters Trophy has been named after him, so we remember him every January. But it's a bit of a shame. It's a very popular event with the public. I'm sure it still will be well attended, but it had cachet as a ranking event, which obviously now it's going to lose. That's just a simple fact. Um, but good luck to all the players who are going to be going there and honouring Paul's memory, including quite a few of his friends, people like Michael Holt, who uh, knew him very well. That's the present, the past, uh, which we've been looking back on this week, was 50 years of Pop Black. Um, first broadcast July the 23rd, 1969. So 50 years ago, three days after Armstrong and Aldrin walked on the moon, in fact. But uh, it was one giant leap for snooker, actually, because... It was the first snooker shown on colour television in the UK. It was on BBC Two. Sir David Attenborough, as he was to become, uh, was the controller of BBC Two and he wanted to showcase the colour service. And snooker was an obvious choice in a way because of the colours, but also quite cheap to produce. It's indoors. You don't need many cameras. Ted Lowe um, had been commentating sort of on an ad hoc basis on various things, going into grandstand frames between Joe and Fred Davis and bits and pieces, in black and white, of course. Ted used to sit in the audience, that's why he had to whisper. You know, he was known as Whispering Ted Lowe, he had to whisper because he was literally sat in the audience to keep his voice down. But obviously, you know, it's obvious to say this, but black and white television, it's quite hard to follow what's happening in snooker. I mean, there's this sort of quote attributed to Ted for those watching in black and white, and no one quite knows how that quote ends. It's something like the yellows behind the pink. No one quite knows, and he may never have said it. I, I'm not so sure he did, but anyway, it's it sort of illustrates the, the difficulty of watching in black and white. When the colour service was introduced, most people didn't have it still. Most people still had black and white televisions. But Pop Black became hugely popular. It didn't take long for it to become the second most watched programme on BBC Two. And it played a huge role in publicising snooker, putting it on the map. For the players at the time, they were sort of scratching around. There was only really the World Championship and they tried to top up their earnings playing in holiday camps, doing exhibitions. But, of course, now they're on the television. Suddenly they could charge far more for that because they were, you know, it was as seen on TV. So Pop Black, yeah, it was one frame a week in the sort of context of the tournament snooker we see today. You'd think not that important. It was hugely important to do well in it, to be seen every week playing on it, and then you could charge for exhibitions and holiday camp engagements. It was a massive thing. And, of course, what it also did, because it was so popular with viewers, was it persuaded broadcasters that snooker was something worth showing and eventually and it didn't take that long we're only talking really about 10 years eventually the BBC and ITV started to show tournaments tournaments were pulled out the air by people like Mike Watterson who sadly passed away earlier this year great promoter he started coming up with formats um, to satisfy the the interest in snooker and then we had the boom in the UK and the rest is history and it all started with Pop Black it all started with David Attenborough I mean you know he's basically a living saint now isn't he he's just so revered for his work in, in television and the natural world but snooker fans as well have every reason to be really um, thankful to him for taking this step and you know happy birthday to Pop Black it was brought back a couple of times um, it's Ended in 1986 because, of course, by then there was a thriving circuit and it had out, sort of outstayed its usefulness, I guess. They brought it back in the 90s um, on a previous podcast. <laughs> we talked to Neil Folds who won it under the time frame format, which was a bizarre thing involving stopping a clock or, and indeed starting a clock. Um, ran for a few years and then they brought it back again in the 2000s because Grandstand, by that point, they had no sport, basically. So they thought, well, we'll fill an afternoon with snooker. 
they brought it back. But it, really, the halcyon days were, I guess, the seventies and the early eighties when great the great stars of the game played in this program, and many people were inspired. Many players were inspired. It's the first. Some, for some of them, exposure to snooker. Alan McManus said it's the first time he'd really seen snooker. It was on Pop Black. He wasn't really that interested in it until he saw it. And, uh, well, as we know, he went on to have a great career himself. Speaking of Scots, of course, John Higgins and Steve Maguire won the World Cup. Um, I guess it wasn't that much of a surprise, really, for two reasons. One, they're great players, that's obvious. But two, it's only a two-man team, so it's very important to get on. Now, I know for a fact there was a, in a previous World Cup, there were two players in the same team who never spoke, apart from when they were actually playing. They never saw each other, never had dinner with each other, and they didn't win it. But John and Stephen, they've known each other for a long time. They practice together, they get on well, have the same sort of sense of humour, all that sort of thing. And you could see what it meant to them as well, particularly Maguire. He seemed really, really delighted to have won uh, for, for, for Scotland. First time they'd won it since 1996, although it's only been held, I think, four times since then. Um, so terrific victory for them. I've got to say, though, the format of that tournament, I think, leaves a lot to be desired. You have five days of round-robin, and, of course, you don't get a point for winning a match. You get a point for every frame you win. So it's quite hard to sort of follow, really, until the last day of the round-robin, where it can get exciting, although, actually, the I think three of the four groups have pretty much been decided. Um, and then, suddenly, we have the knockout played over two days, and then it's over. Um, and I think a lot of people also would say three-man teams would be preferable, but I understand why it's two-man teams. It's a way of getting more countries in, showcasing the international aspect of snooker. And that's the thing I think it's worth saying. I'm trying to be quite balanced in everything I discuss because there are actually two sides to a lot of these issues. You know, you go on Twitter and people thunder away and you'd think, oh, right, OK, so there's only actually one opinion. But there isn't. There's lots of different reasons that these things happen. And one of the reasons that there are two-man teams is because they want a lot of countries and they maybe would struggle if they had to expand that to uh, to bigger teams. But... I'm not sure the format is is that great, actually. And uh, I don't know what snooker fans think about it, but I just feel a World Cup, it's a big opportunity to show a sort of different side of the game, a, t- a team side of the game. The old one in the 80s, actually, talking about Mike Watterson, he, again, one of his promotions, that was a really good one. That was a three, three-man three affair. But, a, but I suppose the counter again to that is there weren't many teams, basically eight teams. In fact, the first year it was held, 1979, Scotland didn't have a team, just didn't have... Three professionals who, who could who could play in it. Of course, that all changed uh, later on with the arrival of Stephen Hendry. So the first ranking event of the season is the Riga Masters. It starts on Friday. It's live on Eurosport and the Eurosport player. Neil Robertson will be defending the title there. It's uh, wide open, though, because there's only, I think, five top 16 players in it. A few didn't, didn't enter and a few got beaten in the qualifiers. Of course, first snooker of the season, they were always going to be vulnerable. So a big chance, potentially, for someone to come through and uh, win their first ranking event, maybe get in the champion champions, all that sort of stuff. Having said that, Neil Robertson seems to have a, a particular skill at winning the first tournament of the season. I think he's done it four times in the last six years, which is particularly impressive. So I guess he's the man to beat. I don't know how much he's practised. I know he's been in Australia, but he uh, had such a good season last season. Six finals, three titles, um, and he'd be be looking, I guess, just to carry that on this season. And it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how the season unfolds in terms of who does what. Of course, Judd Trump is uh, world champion. There'll be a lot of expectation on him, a lot of people closely following how he does. First-time world champions, it has to be said, usually struggle. 
but I get the feeling he won't. And I think one of the reasons is there's just so many events. And also, this was the big thing that he was looking to do, win the World Championship. It was the last piece in the jigsaw of his career, really. He's done that. And, you know, he's not even 30 yet. He's done that. So I'm not saying he can relax, but that's that issue has been put to bed. He's world champion. Maybe now that you just focus on playing and trying to hoover up as many titles as he can. But it, I think it is a big season for a couple of players in particular. One is the man I mentioned earlier, Mark Selby, who has lost his number one spot. He's down to six in the world now. He uh, struggled last season. He won that title in China, beat John Higgins in a terrific final, China Championship, but didn't really threaten to win anything after that. And I don't know. I think Mark wouldn't mind me saying he is a bit of a... He does dwell on these things. I think he he would have been looking at that and thinking, OK, why has it suddenly got started to go wrong? And how do I put it right? Now, we'll find out if he's answered those questions, I guess, when the season gets underway properly. But it'd be interesting to see. I thought his exit at the World Championship, he lost to Gary Wilson, kind of summed up the season for him, really. It was just disappointing. His performance was disappointing. And in the end, you know, he lost in the second round. So be interesting to see how he fares. The other player, I think, has got to really start to pull his socks up is Sean Murphy, who um, had a pretty calamitous season, really. He got to the final in Scotland, but other than that, I think he had eight first-round defeats and in, in ranking events. And, you know, the problem, obviously, with the two-year system is you, you, if you have a bad year, you, the second year is so important. And if he doesn't start going deep in tournaments, then he could be at the top 16. That's a very real possibility. You've got to think that won't happen because he's you know such a good player. But he had a lot of distractions last season. I noticed he's resigned, hasn't he, from the, the Players' Commission um, or the WPBSA board, I think. Anyway, he's resigned from something. He seemed to have a lot of other things going on. He moved to Ireland, so that was kind of an upheaval. Maybe now that's all settled down, he can focus more on actually playing. Of course, he entered the Open <laughs> Gold Championship as well, um, the qualifying, shot 84, so didn't take part at Royal Portrush last week. But I think Selby and Murphy have been such um, ever-presence the last sort of 10, 15 years on the tour. You know, we're just used to seeing them at the business end of tournaments. Suddenly, I think it's a big season for those two. Truth is, though, it's a big season for everyone, isn't it? There's some big prize money and big tournaments to be won. We haven't mentioned Ronnie O'Sullivan yet. I say we, I'm the only one talking. But I haven't mentioned Ronnie O'Sullivan yet. Um, we don't know exactly what tournaments he's going to play. And he made some comments about he wouldn't play in the World Championship and so on. But, you know, who knows whether that's true or not. I think he'll decide nearer the time. Um, I think Shanghai Masters is probably going to be his first outing. He's world number one now, Ronnie, of course, um, and had a very successful season until the World Championship, which he does increasingly now seem to have a problem with. He lost, of course, to James Cahill, um, but he's really struggled there since losing to Mark Selby in the final five years ago now. I'd be very surprised if he didn't win more tournaments. But again, you know, he's just the great unknown quantity, isn't he? But we look forward to seeing him whenever he does play. And, uh, yeah, I think now we've all had a nice summer break and I hope everyone's enjoyed it. We're all looking forward to the season's kind of getting underway again. And, of course, after we have Riga, there'll be another little gap until the International Championship. And then we start to have more regular snooker. Before you know it, we'll be into the new year and then we'll be counting down to the World Championship and the tournaments will be coming thick and fast. Promises to be another fascinating season. I hope to keep this podcast going. I'd love to get to 100 episodes. And I'm, I'm quite sure into the 80s at the moment. So I'd love to get to 100 episodes. Um, and so I hope you will continue to listen and let me know what you think on Twitter, at Dave Hendon. Thanks for listening. i better stop talking now, otherwise I'm going to be out of breath. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.